That's better. What happened that day was in some ways as serious an offense as there can be, given that it threatened the peaceful transfer of power from one president to another. Without people like you, the collective force of the mob that day would not have been the same, says Judge Timothy Kelly to members of the riot on January 6, 2021. You guys might remember that day hearing on the radio that people had stormed the Capitol building of the United States. It's a serious thing that people thought could be done without repercussions or, or that it would be all right. And two and a half years later, the force that is the United States government authority says, nah. No, if you've overstepped your own authority and you've trespassed onto ours, we're going to deal with you because this is serious and sober business. Don't mess. I was going to say don't mess with Texas, but really all of it. Don't mess with the U.S. government and the judicial system and the presidential elections or there will be consequences whether you are aware of it or not. Why would I bring that up? If the U.S. government says messing with their authority is serious business, what happens when we go fooling around with God's authority? Because we do it all the time. Is there any consequences for it? Will there be any consequences for it? This morning, we're in the book of Numbers, and uh, we titled our series Blessing and Rebellion. Here's the broad storyline, all right? The God that created heaven and earth wants to bless humanity and invite us to dwell with him in the special place that he has prepared for us but we have to listen to them in order to stay. And the story of <laughs> the world and human history is that we are really, really bad at actually trusting that God's telling the truth. And we rebel against him. We go our own way. We say, you know, God, I, I hear you saying that that would be a good way for us to live. But you know what? Really looks good to me is this stuff over here. We're going to go check this out. So later. And the, you know, and if God would happen to be like any one of us, we would have just scrapped this whole project long ago. All right? Thank God that he's not like you and I. He's different. And he is uh, committed to working with human partners to rescue and redeem the world. Unfortunately, the biblical witness bears out that most of his human partners he's chosen to work with are just as screwed up as everybody else. So we're going to call this morning blessing and rebellion, rebellion and rebellion because that's what the book of Numbers is. This happens to be one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible uh, because it's a train wreck of cosmic proportions. And it's kind of fun to watch, but it's not a great story. It begins with Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites. Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Pila, became insolent, and they rose up against Moses. And most of us are like, oh, names. That's exactly what we wanted to hear this morning, a bunch of names. But if we pay attention, the author has just told us exactly what kind of story that we're in. Reuben, Israel's firstborn son. These are men from the tribe of Reuben. They should, according to the culture of the time, they should be leading the way. They're the first part of the firstborn tribe. They should have power and authority, and they don't, and they don't like it. So they rose up against Moses. Korah, that ran, oh, that's kind of hard to see, guys. Sorry about that. 
In Exodus 6, we're given a genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Korah shows up. He's Moses' cousin. All right? Just as the people of Israel uh, and their rejection of the promised land because they were led astray by the inhabitants in the land that caused them not to trust God, just like Adam and Eve back in the garden. So this morning we have a conflict between brothers, similar to the story of Cain and Abel. All right, it's a power play. This is a political move on both the civil and the religious sides. And with them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. Some of your Bible translations will say men of the name or men of renown. It's a phrase that's only used in Genesis chapter 6, you know, pre-flood. And it is the author's way of, okay, it'd be like this. If you're watching a show and a character comes on to the stage, you've not seen him before, but in the back, Darth Vader's theme song begins to play. Dun, 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 dun. And you're like, oh, snap, something bad's about to happen. Like, this is one of those things. Men of the name. We're like, oh, judgment is coming because these guys are going to screw up in all sorts of bad ways. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy. Every one of them, and Yahweh is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above Yahweh's assembly? Moses and Aaron, we have some corruption charges to bring against you. You guys are playing favorites. A little bit of nepotism going on, Moses. Yeah, making your brother the high priest. Why are you trying to dominate us and setting yourself up so high? When Moses heard this, by the way, earlier in the story, the narrator told us Moses is the most humble guy in the world. So we know this is baseless. When Moses heard this, that he had set himself on high, he got down real low. He just fell face down. And he said to Korah and to all his followers, all right, in the morning, Yahweh will show who belongs to him and who is holy. He will have that person come near him. The man he chooses he will cause to come near to him. I don't need to defend myself, Moses says. We're just going to let God make the choice here. All right? So now you, Korah, and all your followers, you're to do this. Take censers. And tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before Yahweh. And the man Yahweh chooses will be the one who is holy. I've gone too far? No, you Levites have gone too far. We're, we're, thi we're deep in the thick of things right now. Moses just handed these guys their own death certificate and said, you can sign it if you want to. Because remember what happened to Moses' nephews who, who burned unauthorized incense before God? God killed them. And now these people are coming, questioning Moses and Aaron's leadership. He's like, fine. If you guys want to burn incense before God tomorrow, go for it. Let's see what happens. Moses also said to Korah, he says, now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough? Is it too small of a thing that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near to himself to do the work of Yahweh's tabernacle, to stand before the community, to minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near to himself, and now you're trying to get the priesthood too. You're not satisfied with what God has given you? It is against Yahweh that you and all your followers have banded together. Who's Aaron that you should grumble against him? 
You guys are telling the God of the universe that he doesn't know what he's doing and that he put the wrong person in charge of driving this bus. And you're all yelling up, like, put someone else in charge. I can do a better job than that. It's like, it's not, you don't have a problem with me and you don't have a problem with Aaron. You're rebelling against God. Go for it. Well, then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab from the tribe of Reuben. Summoned. He's not asking. He says, get over here. But they said, nope, we're not going to come. <laughs> Isn't it enough that you brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? You guys remember the last story when they failed to trust God and their memory began to twist? They, these guys are calling the land of Egypt the blessed land of milk and honey. Oh, slavery. It was so good. Back in the day, remember the abundance that we had when we were all slaves crying out because Pharaoh sucked. Oh, we don't remember Pharaoh anymore. That land, though, it was good. And Moses, screw your salvation. You're trying to kill us. And now you want to lord it over us too? You're trying to be in charge? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. What's happening to us in the wilderness? It's your fault, Moses. We're not taking any responsibility for any choices we've made. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? Pull the wool over their eyes? Do you want to gouge our eyes out? He says, we're not coming. Say, Moses, you have no authority. You don't matter. We're not listening to you. And Moses became very angry. And instead of dealing with them, he went back and he talked to God about it. He said, he said to Yahweh, don't accept their offering. I haven't taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. All right, Moses is telling God, don't listen to them. Don't forgive them. I haven't wronged them. This is, this is baseless. Now Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before Yahweh tomorrow. You and they and Aaron. Each man is to take the censer and to put incense in it. 250 censers in all and present it before Yahweh. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. All right. So Aaron on this side, you and 250 other Israelites on that side. And so each of them took his censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and they stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. All right, so we have conflict, both civil and religious. And the religious guys are at least meeting and listening to Aaron, Moses' test. All right, we'll show up and we'll offer incense before God. All right, the civil guys, they're not even showing up to the party. Moses, we're not even going to answer to you. Now, when Korah had gathered all the followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of Yahweh appeared to the entire assembly. It's like when dad shows up to solve the conflict between you and your siblings, God is going to take care of business. And Yahweh says to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. God says, get out of the way. They're doomed. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and they cried out, Oh God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Moses and Aaron, who up to this point have done a rather admirable job obeying all of God's commands, disobey him here. They don't get out of the way, they get in the way. And they call on God and say, Are you going to be angry with everyone because of one person's sin? Which, honestly, is rather confusing. I mean, Moses, he did the census. We know he can count. But one man? We're like, 
Korah, Dathan, Abiram on 250. Moses, like, what's going on with this, like, single guy? In Family of Grace, I'll be honest, this is a puzzle I have not quite figured out yet. I don't exactly know what Moses is doing. I have a, a few suspicions. But he, you know, we've already seen that God will spare the multitude for the sake of one righteous person. And now Moses is flipping it and saying, are you going to be angry with everyone because one guy is, is screwing up? And though I don't, uh, yeah, I'm still figuring it out. What God does do, he says, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So, so God makes the move. Rather than Moses and Aaron get away from the assembly because they're all going to die, now God says, tell the assembly, get away from the ringleaders. <laughs> and we're like, because they're going to get it. So Moses got up and he went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he warned the assembly, he says, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them or you will be swept away because of all their sins. There's that dark theme music again, swept away, like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Apparently they're all kind of living in the same general vicinity. And Dathan and Abiram had come out and they are standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrance to the tents. Just in front of everyone, like, what are you gonna do, Moses? So Moses said, he says, this is how you'll know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. It wasn't in my heart. I didn't plan this. I didn't want this. I didn't choose this. I was sent by someone more powerful than me. Here's how you'll know. If these men, if they just die a natural death, they suffer the fate of all mankind, well, then Yahweh has not sent me. Just go ahead and ignore me. But if Yahweh brings about something totally new, if he creates a new thing right now, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them, with everything that belongs to them. And they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated, not me, but Yahweh with contempt. They've called Yahweh's authority and decision-making into question. If God hasn't sent me, they'll die like everyone else. But if God has sent me, then these guys are gonna go down alive to hell. And as soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them in their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions and they went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned and the earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Oh snap. Later biblical authors, if you're ever reading about like Sheol opening its mouth and swallowing people or the earth eating people, this is where they're getting that image. Right here, because it, it happened. Which is ironic because in the previous story, the people of Israel are saying that promised land is a land that devours its inhabitants. Actually, the wilderness, when you refuse to listen to God, will eat you. And at their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. We're all goners. We're all doomed. A bit understandable. And fire, by the way, came out from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense, just like what happened to Nadab and Abihu. 
May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Yikes. And Yahweh said to Moses, he says, go tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, to remove the censers from the charred remains and to scatter the coals some distance away because the censers are holy. All right. So all these corpses that have been burned alive, those little, in, you know, censers that they were burning incense to God, God says, they gave those to me. I'll take them. All right. He says, and then hammer them out into sheets to overlay the altar because they were presented before Yahweh and they've become holy. Let them be assigned to the Israelites. And so Eliezer, the priest, he collected the bronze censers brought by those who had been burned to death. And he had them hammered out to overlay the altar as Yahweh directed him through Moses to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before Yahweh or he would become like Korah and his followers. Don't mess with the guys that God has appointed. God will choose who comes near, who's holy, and how he's going to be approached. And just as in the days of Noah... After the destruction, God puts a sign in the sky of both his judgment and his mercy. So now the bronze altar where you come to have your sins atoned for, where you come to meet with God and to celebrate in his presence is now going to be coated with these little hammered plates to show you, um, yeah, if you're not a descendant of Aaron, don't mess with this. This is a live wire and it will kill you. Well, the next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You've killed Yahweh's people, they said. I'm just pausing to see if anyone's like slapping their forehead right now because this is, this is a forehead slapping moment. They missed it. They're not listening. They're not paying attention. They don't understand like that these people asked for it and they got what they deserved. Instead, again, they're blaming the people God put in charge. This is all your fault, Moses and Aaron. You killed them. Yeah, Moses the sorcerer with, like, no, God killed him. All right. Well, when the whole assembly gathered in opposition, in opposition against Moses and Aaron, and they turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of Yahweh appeared. And we're like, oh no, we've been here before. Something bad's gonna happen. And Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and Yahweh said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. If you're like, wait, didn't they just do this? Yes, they just did this yesterday. And Moses said to Aaron, grab your censer, put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar, hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from Yahweh. The plague has started. See, back in the beginning of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 53, God says, if the Levites had done their job correctly, wrath would not come on the people of Israel. And here the rebellion and God's wrath is coming upon the people. A plague has started. <sighs> Moses, Aaron, you need to get out there now. Again, instead of, well, I'll keep reading. So Aaron did, as Moses said. And he ran into the midst of the assembly. Aaron is somewhere between the ages of 83 and 123. He's old, gray beard, cool like turban, golden plate, high priestly clothes on, and he's booking it. I always want to see Hollywood try to, try to make this happen. And he's hustling. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and he made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. Moses, the rejected leader, 
tells Aaron, the rejected priest, to hustle out and put yourself in harm's way. Stand in the path of the wave of destruction coming upon the Israelites to make atonement for your enemies. And they do. And God listens. And the people are saved. Because the one that God chose, his anointed one, his Christ, it's the word anointed, stood in the place of death to make atonement for the people's sin. But 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died, you know, yesterday, because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses to the entrance of the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. There's an unfortunate chapter break in our story, because this is immediate. Chapter 17 happens, like continuing story. Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and get 12 staffs from them, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes, and write the name of each man on a staff. All right, a staff, it's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of leadership. Okay, kings, they carry scepters. They're fancy staff, all right? God has answered the religious challenge, okay? A challenge on religious and civil grounds, and God has wiped the rebels clean. Aaron has just successfully saved the people's life by making atonement. He is a high priest able to make atonement for the people. Religiously, God's like, yeah, he's my guy. All right, let's go to the leadership civil side. Let's grab the staffs. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name, for there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe and place them in the tent of meeting in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law where I meet with you. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout and I will rid myself of the constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. God says, here's the challenge. You want to know who I have chosen to lead my people? Look for resurrection from the dead. Look for life coming from a dead stick. It'll sprout. And so Moses spoke to the Israelites and their leaders gave him 12 staffs, one for the leader of each of their ancestral tribes and Aaron's staff was among them. All right, they're, they're walking sticks. They're no life in them. And Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the covenant law. And the next day, Moses entered the tent and he saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the tribe of Levi, had not only sprouted, but it had budded and blossomed and produced almonds. It had budded. It had blossomed. It had produced almonds. What takes a living tree six to eight months to do, a dead stick had done overnight. You want to know who God chose as his leader? Look for life from the dead and the bearing of fruit. And so Moses brought out all the staffs from Yahweh's presence to all the Israelites, and they took, they looked at them. And each one of the leaders took his own staff, the dead stick, the dead stick, the dead stick. And Yahweh said to Moses, put Aaron's staff, the one that came to life, in front of the Ark of the Covenant in my presence to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. And this will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. And Moses did as Yahweh commanded him. And the Israelites said to Moses, We will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Anyone who, who even comes near the tabernacle of Yahweh will die. Are we all going to die? 
and they don't get it, and they miss it. They just, they just miss the point of everything that God has been trying to tell them, uh, of the leaders that God has put in front of them. And so just as we've seen, when the people rebel, when they reject relationship with God, God follows up with rules. And so we have two chapters of rules, chapter 18. It's the chapter on not dying <laughs> to the priests and to the Levites, to those that God has said, you guys get to come near. It's my gift to you. It is a special privilege for you. I have chosen you to come near and to serve the rest of the Israelites but this privilege comes with responsibility. So here's how you can not die and how they can not die. It's said four times in that chapter. And after we deal with the leadership and the privileges and responsibilities of those who are not exempt from God's holy nature and character, chapter 19 is this very strange, unique ritual. It's a sin offering that takes place not in the tabernacle, but outside the camp. And just as in the story of Nadab and Abihu, who rebelled against God, and then we were given like five or six chapters of clean and unclean laws that culminate in the Day of Atonement, a way of purging the tabernacle from the stain and pollution of death. So now, after the sin of Korah and the rebellious followers, we're given the strange ritual designed to cleanse the camp of the pollution and the stain of sin and death. And in order to make these people clean, you need a priest who's willing to go outside the camp and be made unclean himself. In fact, to make these waters of purification, the priest will be made clean, and then his first assistant will be made unclean, and then his second assistant will be made unclean. In fact, everybody, whoever touches these waters that make people clean, will become unclean first, and then at nightfall they'll become clean. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. It's a question of authority. Who gets to decide who comes close to God? God or us? And the text is really, really clear that Yahweh chooses who is his, who is holy, and how he will be approached. And those who presume otherwise will face judgment. You don't get to do this without consequences. One of the things we see is one, just thank God for Moses and Aaron. Thank God for people who are willing to put themselves in the line of danger to save those who are currently complaining about him and rebelling against him. Like, if not for these guys, the people of Israel would have died like fourfold. This is the fourth time Moses has put himself on the line and said, God, I'd rather you take me than that you take them. Save them. Man, if something bad ever happened to Moses and Aaron, or if they ever, you know, failed in their duties, what would become of the people of Israel? Like, I don't, I don't you know. And again, we see that those who are chosen to approach Yahweh, they have immense privilege and responsibility. They're not exempt. All right? Moses, his nephews died. Aaron, his own sons died because they didn't treat Yahweh as holy. And now all we're seeing is the exact same consequence of what happens when people think that they can tread all over God's presence and his authority and treat him as if he's a decoration in their own life as opposed to the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. And it's a tough story because at the end of it, the people of Israel are saying, we're all going to die. And it almost invites us, the readers, to go, what do I think about this God that in these stories seems to be killing everybody off all the time? What do you think? Is, is this God who, who presents himself as like, I am who I am, like I'm me, deal with it. Is he unfair? 
Does he play favorites? Is he a harsh and mean God out to kill you? Because there are those who criticize the Christian faith and they point to this story and they say exactly that. Look at this God of the Old Testament. All right, he's like this old harsh grandfather figure on his rocking chair loving to squish people's toes whenever they come by. He's out to kill you. Is that what we think of him? Or do we, do we think of him like Moses and Aaron in the story? That actually he is, he is our life and our inheritance and our everything. That, that when enemies come against us unfairly, he's the one who shows up to vindicate us. That he's our defender when we're in trouble. That he's the giver of life. He's the one who says, you don't need land, you don't need anything else. I've chosen you and you belong to me and I belong to you. I am your inheritance. I am your blessing. I am your life. I am your savior. What kind of God do we serve? And who is he? Who has the authority? And will we respect it? Do we? Do we get to make all the decisions? Do we get to shout up and say, hey, God, you made a lousy choice. Who's driving this bus? My kids do that sometimes. They're old enough. They're riding in the back seat. They're looking ahead. And they love to tell me how I should drive my car. I particularly like it when they're like, Dad, you need to drive faster. And I'm looking at the car bumper 12 feet in front of my bumper. And I go, what do you mean? Or, Dad, you should drive faster. I'm like, it's a red light. You don't know what you're talking about yet. Just chill. I got you. See, on January 6th, a number of people showed up because they... They honestly felt, I'm convinced, like they, they really did feel like an election had been stolen, the U.S. government had, uh, had been corrupted, that people are ruining our country. And now two and a half years later, they're facing judgment for usurping that. As one of the judges, he said, no one was swept away to the Capitol. No one was carried. The rioters were adults. And that this defendant, like hundreds of others, walked there on his own two feet, and he bears responsibility for his own crimes. And there may be others who bear greater responsibility and who must be held accountable, but this is not their day in court. It is yours. And whether we sympathize with those who showed up or those who didn't, these people are facing the consequences of trespassing on authority that is not their own. And God does the same thing. Will we respect his authority or not? Because when we rebel against the authorities that God has put in charge, we're telling God, you don't know what you're talking about and you've made a mistake. God, you're not smart enough. Let me tell you how you should run things around here. So it may be corny or not, but if you guys want to walk away remembering, don't be a backseat driver to God's chosen leaders. I think it'd be helpful. He's not asking us to run the universe. He's asking us to respect his decisions, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Even when, like, my kids in the back of the car, they're like, Dad, you should clearly be going faster. Like, maybe we need to learn to do something that our culture as a whole has not taught us to do at all, and that is to submit our own desires and our own will and our own opinions to authority greater than themselves. And it's hard to do. We live in the most individualistic culture in the history of mankind. 
particularly us on the western part of the United States. Our forefathers were pioneers, you know, the explorers. Take the wilderness. Be your own man. John Wayne, hoo-ha, you know. But the story, it makes us long for God's kind of leadership. If you want to know the kind of leader that God's looking for, he's not looking for John Wayne. He's not looking for the president of the United States. He's looking for someone like Moses, someone like Aaron, someone that we should be looking for, someone who's humble. He's not trying to set himself above all his brothers. He comes not not to be served, but instead to serve. Someone who's self-sacrificing, who will go and stand in the wave, the path of the wave of destruction coming in order to serve us, in order to rescue those of us who deserve to die. To love those who are rebelling against him, to love his enemies. Who says, I'm not after my own desires. No, I'm going to listen to everything that God has to say. And if you want to know what to look for, look for resurrection from the dead, life from the dead. That is God's you know, statement. This is the person I have chosen to be my anointed one, to be my Christ. Lo and behold, all the way back in the book of Numbers, we get a picture of the kind of leader that God just might choose. And the prophets, hundreds of years later, will reflect back on the story of Korah and the rebellion. And they're like, we need another servant like Moses. God promised one would come. He's going to be humble. God's going to love him. He's going to give his life and sacrifice for the sins of many. And God is going to vindicate him by raising him from the dead. And lo and behold, the prophets were right. And a hundred years, years later, God sends his son, Jesus. God come in human form, who came not to ser be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many, to actually suffer death on our behalf, to take the punishment we deserve, to give his life to atone for our sins, who was rejected by us, and yet who God vindicated and showed to be his son, his chosen leader by the resurrection from the dead. And who, as we read in Psalm 2 at the beginning of this worship gathering, look out, all you who think, that you can pick a different authority figure than the one that God has chosen. Because God's not going to look kindly on those who rebel against his chosen leader. See, God's going to judge those. So family of grace, we have a choice, all right? What I hope is that all of you would yield to God's authority and to God's authorities. If you choose not to, well, um, you just read like, God, he, he has some backing and power <laughs> to do as he will. All right, so the first authority to submit to is, is Jesus. All right, and if you don't get this, you're not going to get anything. I talked to a homeless lady uh, today, sleeping in our field. She's very, very kind. Happens to be addicted to drugs. It keeps her on the street. But man, I want God to save her so bad. And she's told, she says, people tell me that I'm the most like Christian, like non-Christian they've ever met. And, and I, I kind of concur with that. She's very, very sweet. But I tell her, like, the thing about your life right now is that you get to decide what a good life is. You're making the choice yourself about how you want to live. And you're telling God, I don't need you. I can figure it out on my own. You, you basically just said, God, I don't want to listen to you and what you say is right. I'm going to make choices for myself. 
So while the rest of us look at it and say, it's very commendable, you're a very kind person, you're going your own way. And you're telling God that you don't need him, and that you don't need Jesus as an authority figure in your life. I say, that's, that's a problem. Now, I also get to tell her about the good news about Jesus, and I hope, oh man, I hope God's going to be working on her. Because we've, we've had these conversations a couple times, so you can, you can pray for her. But God says more than that. There are other authorities in his life that he's put in place. So kids, God says, honor your parents. Respect them. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, the first five commands all are associated with God's name, and the second five commands are all associated with the neighbor. But number five is honor your parents, that you may live long in the land that Yahweh your God has given you. We didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose our families. But God says, honor the authority I've put in your life. And at this point, we've got to modify things. Jesus is perfect. I mean, he's the guy who died for us. He's gone to the furthest extent to show us that he's, he's worth trusting. And so God is the ultimate authority. And in as much as our parents are in line with God's authority, respect him. And then we all know that, that authorities rebel against God's authority. So God's number one, but, but obey and respect your parents. Obey and respect the government, dear family of grace. If you haven't paid your taxes yet, please pay your taxes. Please drive appropriately. Please live as model citizens. And please don't complain. Yeah, let me, let me ask you guys to live as the, one of the most countercultural things I know how to, that we could do here in Portland, Oregon, is to not complain about the government. Which is, di- I mean, it's different from having legitimate political discourse in a democracy. So, so this takes some, some care. But don't grumble and complain about those that God has put in charge to bring peace into our neighborhood. And I will repent of that because I do sometimes. And I like to shrug it off, but God calls that sin. He says, I put these people here for a reason. Respect them and honor them. God also says to us to respect and honor our church leaders. And so I'll tell on myself, it's kind of funny because I managed to get this one wrong to myself, <laughs> which is really odd. I may have told you the story, but uh, if you've been around for any length of time, you know that uh, over the course of three years, we had a, a complete leader- leadership swap in this church. Nothing really bad, but just we went from having a lot of gray-haired wisdom to a lot of not gray-haired struggle. And then COVID hit, which made even the gray-haired people pull their hair out wondering what to do. And for about a year, I was complaining to God. And I said, God, I shouldn't be here. What am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. Would you please bring someone qualified in to run this thing? And it took about a year before one day I woke up to the fact that I'm saying, God, you've done something wrong, man. You've screwed up. This, this was a mistake. Yeah, I don't think you're competent to, to run a, a church because you put the wrong guy in, in leadership. And then I woke up to like, what am I doing? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Okay, whoops. Uh, And so since that time, I've tried to be at peace with the fact that for some reason right now, God has chosen to put Sterling and I in leadership and we'll see what God does. I don't know. But this is is his church and it's his thing. So I'm, I'm here to show Jesus to you. But let me tell you a story about a guy that I got to watch model humble leadership. And when he confronted me with things in my life, 
He made it easy to submit to him because I watched him submit to other people. His name was Jared. He baptized me, he married me. He's had an incalculable effect upon my life. And when Jared was a youth pastor, he was invited out to lunch by a, a parent of one of the guys in the youth group. And so he showed up thinking he was going to lunch. And I don't know if it was like Elmer's, Sherry's, a restaurant like that. And he shows up to, to sit down at a table and they're like, oh, we're going to be in the back, in the conference room. And he walks back there. Oh, he's not having lunch with just one parent. He's having lunch with all the parents. It's like 40, 50 people in there who showed up to tell him what a terrible job he's doing running the youth group with their kids. Dear friends and family, you know, there might be a legitimate reason to bring complaints to someone, but don't do that. It's <laughs> a really bad way uh, to handle your complaints. And, and I've met people who have walked away from ministry. I've met people who've walked away from God because of the way that the Christians treated them. Jared didn't do that. He stayed and he served and he chose to be humble and to submit himself to the authority of the church. And a couple years later, that church actually sent him as a church planter up to Portland to plant a church called Endeavor. You may have heard of it. And as a church plant here in Portland, he's hours away from his sending church. You could do whatever you wanted. But Jared realized that in his reading of scripture, there's a certain aspect of church polity that, that's different from what the church down in Roseburg did. And so he drove down and he met with the elders and he explained, here's how I'm reading the scripture and this is what I think would be okay. And they heard him out and they said, thank you for explaining that. We, we don't agree. And so Jared could drive up to Portland and he could choose to just do his own thing. He'd probably get away with it. But instead he, he told us, for the next five years, while this church is supporting us, we're going to submit to their leadership, and we're going to honor them. And when we're on our own, and when, when we're free and clear, then we will, we will change the way that we do things around here. But for right now, we're going to submit. And as I watched one leader humble himself to others' authority, it was so much easier to humble myself to his. And I'm grateful for it. Because humility is hard. It's, it's really hard. You're going to feel like you get trampled on. You feel like, you know, God, if I obeyed you, I'm going to get round all over. And as one guy I met mentioned, he says, that's true. You will. If God's dead. I went, what? He says, if God's dead, you're going to get trampled all over. But if God's real and he's a factor in his life and you submit to him and to his ways and you humble yourself, he'll come to bat for you. He'll come to bat for you. And he does. He does. So my friends, don't be a backseat driver to the God who created the universe. Don't criticize the leaders that God has chosen. Submit to them and be blessed by them. You know, at the end of the day, it's all about trusting that God actually knows what he's doing. Do we trust him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for your work in our lives. Thank you for Jesus, for a perfect leader who gave his life for us to atone for our sins, who loved his enemies and called us to do the same, who came to serve 
and calls all those who would lead your people to do the same, all of us, to wash one another's feet, to love the unlovely, and to show that no one is actually unlovable. God, that you're committed to working in the world through a bunch of really broken, messed up people who are perfect for the job. And so would your spirit change us and renew us, not that we would ever be perfect, not until Christ comes, but that we'd be a place of grace, a place of mercy, a place where it's okay to own that we're broken and messed up and we make a bunch of bad decisions that hurt people really bad, but that we have the freedom to say we're sorry and we trust you and we can ask for forgiveness and we can freely forgive because we have been forgiven. God, may the world know that we follow Jesus because we actually have what it takes to get along with one another, to not be a bunch of grumbling, griping people that fit right in with the world, but Lord, that our speech would be gracious and joyful and bless those who hear it. But God, you got to do your work. We need you, and we're going to need you tomorrow. I'm going to need you the day after that. Please don't ever give up on us, and thank you because of Jesus. We know you never will. So be praised in Christ's name. Amen.